Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Larry, today let's return to one of our favorite topics, which is the voices of Brookline, something that has become not only a pet project and a writing project, but it's it's really a part of your life. And so what here to find out more about some of these voices and who they are and how they affected you and interacted with you. One uh, that we'll start with, Justin Jerry Weiner. Tell me about that individual. Yeah, he's an amazing person. Uh, Justin Weiner, everybody calls him Jerry. Um, Justin is an appropriate name for a guy like this. Uh, Jerry is now 97 years old, and he is still active, probably as active as he ever has been. He's an incredible guy who has lived an amazing life, and he wrote it up in a long memoir, which he shared with me, because he actually wrote something on the inside of the memoir that he sent to me and said, your book, Voices of Brookline, encouraged me to write this memoir. Mm. I just thought that was amazing. Because if anybody has encouraged anybody between the two of us, it's mainly his encouragement of me. Because I think of Jerry Weiner as really a role model. Um, I, maybe it's ironic that a Republican like Jerry, a real Republican, not a Trump Republican, uh, as I'll tell, um, he there's something about Jerry that is so real and so honest uh, and so giving even though he has, you know, great self-respect for himself, and why shouldn't he? Um, he uh, that that you have to honor him. What's his background, Larry? Yeah, his background is that he comes from a family that um, was always well-to-do. Uh, Jerry became um, the head of the family company, which is called Shawmut Mills. That's its popular name. And it's, you know, that's uh, they put out knitting product, products and things like that. A very, very successful company. And, um, you know, I can come back to um, his role as the moderator of the Brookline Town Meeting, which was very important uh, in my life and also a chapter in Voices of Brookline about that. And it's very instructive about American democracy. But first, I want to go a little bit later in the relationship between the two of us and what he's done. Um, Jerry, as I say, was a mentor to me, but more importantly, uh, it was his work with the uh, Augusta, while using that word again today, uh, New England Historical Genealogical Society, which is founded maybe in, a, one, in uh, 1840 or something like that. It's old. Um, it's, it was mostly Yankee. Uh, it, but uh, it has um, you know, expanded its reach over the years. So Jerry at one point, who's a, he's a very, um, you know, comes up with ideas and he follows through on those ideas and he went to see, I guess it was Brenton Simon, who's an historian and now mm -hmm. head of, of uh, NEHGC, as New England Circle Genealogical Society is called, and proposed the idea of the American Jewish Historical Society joining up uh, on the um, 
in the building on Newbury Street in Boston where NEHGC is. And one thing led to another, and that happened. And a little later, uh, the group from the American Jewish Historical Society changed their identity to become what is now known as the Weiner Family Heritage Mm. Center, called uh, for the Family Heritage Center, JHC, Jewish Heritage Center. And that's how that uh, group came to be, which is mostly interested in uh, in the field of finding out where we come from and uh, building up histories of people um, from family records and the like, really in the field of genealogy. I recall seeing you at an event that promoted that uh, over at the old Ritz Hotel many years ago, Brenton Simons invited me to MC that event. You recall that? Well, yeah, of course I recall that. Sure. You were the MC, and I remember the conversation we had in the back of the room yeah. uh, before the event unfolded. They're always looking for you, Jordan, because— uh, MC will travel, but that, I remember that was a lovely event and, and a beautiful family that you're reflecting on. Yeah, and they—right. And um, at that time, he was with his wife, Genevieve, who—or uh, Genevieve might be the correct pronunciation— who passed away maybe two or three years ago. She was a very active woman, a great athlete and so forth, and uh, that left Jerry, uh, you know, I'm sure he was unhappy uh, about that, but uh, this is the kind of guy that just goes on and keeps going. Uh, So that um, now the Jewish Heritage Center is rising, still connected to the American Jewish Historical Society, but um, they're, the building, I think they're buy, buying the building next door. It's going to be expanded. I've been down there. And amazingly, Jordan, what happened is that um, I think Jerry was instrumental in this. Brent and Simon got in touch with me, brought me down, and said they'd like to collect all my historical papers, anything that a, an historian, which I then fashioned myself as, would give their eye teeth for. And they did that. They collated it. They put it together, they digitized it, they put contents on it, and they published it on the World Wide Web. So there I am out there, and uh, they'll do the same thing for books I've written since that time. So that was a wonderful honor. And what I did uh, was that I established a foundation grant uh, for the Jewish Heritage Center at the New England Historical Genealogical Society and uh, the Jewish Heritage Center. But, Jordan, they're going to have to wait for Lois and I to pass on to the next world if there is one before that, <laughs> before that comes. All right, to... so we got it. We got several, uh, several years, maybe decades to go before that happens. Um, <laughs> but that's a lovely story about Jerry. And uh, as, I, as I say, uh, I feel connected personally because I was involved with the event. But as far as Jerry is concerned, um, you know, uh, as I say, did his own memoir, he took a real active interest in mine, and uh, he's been helpful on that. Um, not only, uh, you know, he's always worked his whole life on history, Jewish history, particularly generally uh, as well, but in Boston specifically, in that field of genealogy. Uh, I told you what an amazing person he is. I don't know whether you remember that night, but when he gets up to speak and speaks extemporaneously, he makes the point uh, better than anybody else could. Uh, he's, he, just, he just has a way of getting to the point and telling you about it. So I would say that his effect on me, Jordan, and you'll appreciate this, 
I never have been a very traditional Jew in the sense of of uh, Jewish um, services and stuff like that. But I think I think one of the big reasons I've become a more culturally aware Jew is because of Jerry and uh, my friendship with him and uh, his interest in me. Does that does that? It, it it says a lot. It really does. And uh, um, I think the fact that he's lived such a long and fruitful life has been great because he's been able to do what he does, which is give back. And you reflected on that. Well, as a matter of fact, giving back is what it's all about with Jerry. His other great role in Brookline, and he loves Brookline, was that he was the moderator of the town meeting for a while. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a big thing going on in America about uh, a lot of towns want to become cities. And uh, that's a mayor and a city council as opposed to the traditional town meeting. Well, Jerry, uh, you know, when he became – he was first a town meeting member. When he became – when he was elected as the moderator of the town meeting, he he said uh, what you just said. He said, uh, you know, I want to give back. He said – made a remark that it seems to me you should give back. And he has locally, nationally, and internationally. Um, When I talk about him being a Republican – he was the head of a of an organization, Republicans for Eugene McCarthy, who was a presidential candidate and a strong Democrat from the Midwest. So that uh, Jerry, um, uh, you know, is not a strict Republican. I can't imagine that he ever voted for uh, Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, he's just a guy that's straight down the line. And, uh, you know, the basic tenet of Republicanism, of being able to do it yourself and bringing yourself up by your own bootstraps in a competitive society, you know, that's certainly uh, a point of view that should be honored, not the guys that are trying to tear down democracy. That builds up democracy and the idea of success. Um, I'm going on a little bit uh, about um, about Jerry because I think he's an important person, but I invite you to interrupt me as you often do. No, no, no. I, I, again, uh, man's lived almost a century. He's worth all the mentions that you want to do. And just talk a little bit before we move on about your connection with him. You speak on the phone. You guys get together occasionally. No, we don't talk a lot uh, on the phone, but uh, he's very responsive whenever I write to him. I sent him a copy of uh, the first co- published or created copy of my memoir. It's about 400 pages that I sent to him. And he wrote back immediately how fascinated he was reading about my legal career, which I don't think we've touched on uh, quite yet, at least not all of it. So whatever I do, uh, he's like, he's like uh, even though he's only seven years older, that's a long time. And um, he's like, you know, like a father. Mm. Um, you know, I look up to him. I just think he's terrific. It definitely has a place in your life. Yeah, let me tell you about some of the things he did as moderator. He allowed the discussion and the vote to bring troops home from Vietnam. And, uh, and what did he use for a president? A precedent that the town meeting back in 1770, whatever it was, uh, gave had a vote on their opinion about the Boston Tea Party. And the vote he allowed on Vietnam was the first of its kind in the United States on that that issue of bringing home mm. the troops from Vietnam. Then he was instrumental in legislation on the books if you became a town of 15,000 15, 15, 
of more people. You had to become a city. They turned that one around so that now if it chooses to remain a town, as Brookline has chosen, they can do that. Um, so that, um, and I myself, inculcated in that uh, type of atmosphere, I believe in town meeting. Um, de Tocqueville, who visited this country, Alexis de Tocqueville, many years ago, uh, said that, um, he put it this way, um, the town is um, is foremost, I'm sort of paraphrasing his words, the town is foremost and uh, it's unique in American society and it's it's the way that people reach democracy was the essential idea that de Tocqueville gave to us. And Jerry himself says that here we care about the people all the way to the top. And he was talking about the the organization of of town government. Now think of this. The moderator sees it all before him when he has the town meeting. 250 people from all precincts of the town are there as town meeting members. Not only are they there, but the advisory committee, mm. which advises on the many uh, – votes to come up, and there are a lot of them, is there. So are a lot of the town officials, um, all of the town meeting members, by extension, every person in Brookline, and a lot of people are out there saying things, all the committees, all the departments of the town, they're all there. Uh, and um, the town, and the, you know, instead of a city council, they got a town administrator. The guy now, a guy named Mel Kleckner, has been there about 10 or 12 years He's leaving. We've got to find a new one. Um, the town administrator is very important. But the town administrator can't legislate stuff. He needs the town meeting. And he needs the support of, of all the other groups. So I raised the question when I interviewed Jerry and one of the other moderators, a very fine moderator who just stepped down, um, that um, – and I, I, who – uh, about where the center of American town government and Brookline town government was. And um, and that, the, the other guy that I was interviewing that day is Sandy Gadsby, who's a lawyer. Uh, Jerry is not a lawyer. Um, but we've had some very uh, great moderators of the town. And so then I asked the question, where is the center of Brookline? Town administrator runs it all day, but as I said, he needs the support of everybody. So uh, various opinions were given by these two guys. The select, the selectmen, or now called select people, I guess, uh, are a buffer. They take knocks, but agree with them or not. They provide great leadership. Um, so I asked them, what if there was no town meeting? They wouldn't accept this because they just think that there will be a town meeting, there should be a town meeting. Brookline's very proud of its town meeting, it is a great way to govern because, um, look, there are how many thousands of towns in the United States? So I suggested at the end that what may lie at the center of Brookline's democratic character appears to, quote myself, to be that the amalgam of constituent parts is what makes our town unique and makes it survive as a lovely place to live. Uh, both see that type of democracy extending indefinitely into the future. And I wrote to myself, will it? Because, Jordan, you, as you know, I was involved in that argument before the town meeting that had to do with um, Ethel Weiss, 
who had that little toy and card shop died in over 100. Uh, we talked about shop right across from the Kehilth Israel and very close to the devotion school about the naming of the devotion school when they decided they would take the devotion name off of the school because Edward Devotion 300 years ago he had one slave. Um, so did 14 United States president, presidents. But in any event, um, I argued that before the town meeting and did not get a very good reception. I argued that her name should be attached, not a rather obscure uh, but very effective uh, black lady who was uh, working in the field in the 1920s in Boston but all over the country and had minimal um, appearances. Uh, she lived in Brookline for a relatively short time. And I thought that the reception I received at town meeting, I gave a speech there, was um, that they had already decided what they were going to do. And it was almost like PC um, in the sense that um, they thought that uh, naming a school like that would s sort of solve their conscience about racial issues, which have been big in Brookline in the last few years. Those are other stories having resulted in court verdicts, and these things are still going on. Well, I think that what I want to say is that um, this interview with Jerry and uh, uh, and also with Sandy Gadsby, this discussion took place about 2003 or four. I think a lot has happened in those 18 years since then, and th their feeling that it's a, that democracy is going to last. I'm not. I'm not really sure about that. Um, if it doesn't, if it does, then I don't think Brookline will change from town meeting. If democracy crumbles, either halfway or the full way in the country, then I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think the makeup of town meeting and the way they approach things is quite the same as it was. It's more. Uh, it's more divisive. It's more argumentative. It's less. Uh, collaboration, less agreement. Um, and I, my own experience says to me that it's just not the same, that it doesn't quite reflect what's going on in the rest of the country, but it does reflect it to some extent. And so Jerry and Sandy, both wonderful guys who did great things as the moderator of the town, would really have a lot of trouble controlling things at the present time. And, you know, Sandy may not, I don't know what Sandy's mind was when he decided to go in another direction. He's not a kid, but uh, he's maybe in his 70s, something like that. But, it, you know, it's a tough job. And you don't get, I, maybe you get paid for it, but it's not very much. And I think that, um, I think that Sandy conceivably could have said, well, I'm out of here. I've had enough of this. I mean, just like some guys have left the House and the Senate because they can't take it anymore. Mm. So my question at the end was, uh, you know, will it? And I don't know whether it will, but I think that's about all I can say on it. I, you know, I, I'm not a, a Pollyanna thinking everybody, everything's going to be fine. Um, but but as you say, when you knew a guy like Jerry and in this case Sandy as well, you knew what could be done. Uh, in the right circumstances. Oh, absolutely. I mean, great people make uh, make great things happen. They don't do things uh, by uh, pressing buttons. 
they think about it. And, you know, these two guys thought about it, no doubt. Absolutely. A very, very fine look at a very fine man. Thank you, Larry. My pleasure. I, you know, I'm really happy to talk about these Brookline people because I will say that uh, Brookline is a lovely town. And I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know that I appreciated where I came from when I was younger, but I sure do now with the COVID thing happening, everything politically and everything else. It's, it's a nice place to reside, close to Boston and in itself, its own town, even though surrounded on three sides by the great metropolis. Excellent. So I think we'll have time for one more. Do you want to focus it primarily on the Marshall Smith story? Yeah. Okay, because I think that makes sense. So this will be, because this is looking at my deadlines here. All right, so we've been talking about many of your favorites in the Voices of Brookline, and we could go on for days and weeks, but uh, a name that's come up before, Larry, Marshall Smith, who's so well known for a variety of reasons. You wanted to touch on Marshall, on Judy, and a gentleman named John Gallagher in today's episode. Yeah, I do. Marshall's an incredible guy. He was my classmate at Brookline High School. We graduated in 1948. Um, You wouldn't have known he was there because he's a very quiet guy. Um, But he was there, and he was thinking all the time. Marshall doesn't say a lot. He does a lot. Um, he He came here from the Lynn school system. And as soon as he got to Brookline, he said to himself, this is where I want to be. He became interested in history, politics, you name it. And um, uh, he was, um, you know, he, when I say you didn't know he was there, you know, like a lot of people that become the handsomest guy in the class, the best poly, the best uh, uh, this, that, or the other thing, they win all sorts of prizes for popularity, uh, best looking, best, uh, most entertaining. So, uh, you know, these people don't disappear. They live good lives. And uh, but a lot of those people that are big deals in high school, you never hear from them really again. In my class, uh, Marshall Smith, we heard from him again, and not too long afterwards, he went out there and he went to Wall Street to get into the securities business, and he he, you know, like anything he would touch, he would be successful, but he decided after I don't know how long, a year or two. This isn't for me. This is all about making money. I don't want to just spend my life making money. Uh, I'm really interested in a lot of other things. And while he was in New York, I guess that he visited a place at that time was which called the Paperback Gallery. Totally different with from what he did, but it did have paperback books. There weren't a lot of paperback books at that time. Mm. I think there were maybe 3,000 uh, on the market. Um, after Marshall got a hold of the idea for the paperback booksmith, suddenly there were well over 30,000. And paperbacks, which are cheap, easy to carry, you can take it any place, you can read it at home, um, you know, became popular. He's the guy that made him popular. That's a big deal because these 3,000 weren't about history of science or astronomy or political science or uh, a lot of the subjects that uh, they became popular for, and he opened his first paperback booksmith in 1961 in Boston. Now, we graduated uh, high school in 48. He must have graduated college in 52 or something, so then he was on Wall Street. 
Um, so it didn't take them long, a little maybe maybe around 30, to have that first paperback booksmith, which changed the reading habits of America altogether, has been called the paperback revolution. So, you know, Marshall said, and I quote him, maybe a little off on the quote, but essentially his quote, paperback books, this was, this was his idea, paperback books could become a foundation for the spread of knowledge and education around the country in literature, nonfiction, history, and those other things I, I mentioned to you, uh, Jordan. That was his social word. His mission, that was his mission. I don't know whether you call him a sociologist or a, an historian or a, a gifted marketer. Uh, you know, he's all of those things. And um, so, and off he went. And um, uh, I, I think he also made the remark that democracy is really founded on a knowledgeable citizenry. Mm. Now, another thing that made this come to pass, and Marshall recognized this, was that the GI Bill, which came after World War II, uh, provided enough money for lots of people to go to college that wouldn't have gone to college otherwise. And with that education, they became interested in reading. And as I said, the amount of, uh, of books expanded exponentially so, and and uh, also, um, Marshall opened other stores based on the paperback booksmith ideas, paperback video, paperback learning, paperback cyber, cybersmiths. Also, I think it was called videosmith, learningsmith, mm. cybersmith. Um, and um, who came up with the idea for the name paperback booksmith? Well, that was Marge Alpert, his mother-in-law, A-L-P-E-R-T. <laughs> they were a well-known family. And his first wife, Judy, was an uh, an Alper. Uh, I said T-A-L-P-E-R, I believe it is. Okay. And um, so um, she was instrumental in that. And uh, so, and Marshall came up with this tag, which I'm sure you'll recognize, Jordan, dedicated to the fine art of browsing. Yeah, I do remember that. It's wonderful. It's a big part of growing up in this area. And uh, was it expanded nationally, Larry, or Oh, yeah. He had stores all over. He did. And, uh, yeah, and um, it, it did become a chain. And uh, how did he come up with the dedicated to the fine art of browsing? Well, some guy had a, a, a paperback store, but if you touched the book, you owned it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was an episode of Seinfeld that uh, focused on that uh, issue. Yeah, no, it, 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 bookstores are a great place to mingle and, and lose yourself and have fun, and that's still the case at the Brookline location. It's a, but that, his idea was you don't own it. You should look at it. If you buy it, fine. If you don't buy it, fine. Um, he, he, his, his idea to do that was monumental. And, um, yes, it is a place where people get along. I think one parent said my kids used to go to the pizza parlor. Now they go to the bookstore. And um, they expanded in Brookline. When you walk in there, it's pretty huge. And there's all these books all over the place. And he also uh, sold other things as beside books, greeting cards and this, that. And, you know, it's quite a place. And um, he had somebody that came in and was there about 25 years. She just retired not long ago, Dana Brigham. And she instituted the idea of having authors come mm. to read she also instituted some other ideas that made it a social meeting place. 
And so it did become, as you just alluded to, um, a place where people met, socialized, talked. And it didn't feel as though they had to buy the book. No, and, and coffee became part of the uh, the formula. And, you know, refreshments. <laughs> it, it really is an uh, interesting cultural change for the better. And it's thankfully still around in some cases. Uh, people read electronically, but it's nice to see paperbacks on subways and elsewhere. I'm a big fan. So tell me more about his wife, about the, the Judy Smith here. Oh, yeah. Judy is a wonderful uh, woman. She's a very, very – she sticks – I haven't seen her now for a long time. I'm going to see her soon, and I'll tell you why. Uh, as I mentioned to you, uh, another person in Voices of Brookline is, was a guy named John Gallagher. We spoke about him at length. John was previously the president of the Longwood Cricket Club. He's still very active there. The Longwood Cricket Club has become – Inclusion, inclusionary, right. as opposed to exclusionary, comes from an old Irish family. Uh, he lived for a while with uh, uh, Mayor Curley in his home in Jamaica Plain. He was his step grandfather, and uh, they, he tells me the stories about Sunday breakfast when a lot of important people, including Ted Williams, would show up when he was a young guy. Um, so that and John Gallagher and I reconnected be, uh, recently. Because I wrote to him uh, that he that he was in some of the things I was writing about, so he invited me to the, his club, the St. Patolf Club, uh, down on um, Beacon uh, Commonwealth oh, Avenue. Yeah, Com Ave, right? Yeah, and we went in there, and uh, he showed me around. We had a great lunch, um, and we really found interest in what each other was doing. So he invited me to see the Longwood Cricket Club's collection of trophies and memorabilia going back to the beginning of tennis in this country. And the only he says the only thing you need to have to gain membership at the Longwood Cricket Club now is uh, you have to love tennis. As a matter of fact, you know, about 18 years ago, when I put him in the Voices of Brookline, he invited me to run a program uh, there as the uh, chairperson, a panel, um, that had to uh, as the as the as a member of the Brookline Historical Society, and I did that. Anyway, John, he's a great guy, and um, so he invited me out there. So I he and he had mentioned he mentioned Judy. Now, what happened with Judy is that you know she and Marshall had three terrific kids together. They all worked in the booksmiths. One of them was a librarian locally. They were all interested in learning and books and history and things that capture your imagination. Mm -hmm. Jordan, I know what they do. Oh, yeah. And they capture my imagination. And um, so anyway, always wanting to – you know how I like to reconnect with people I've known. And Judy became an – she's now 88. She became an international tennis champion. She plays – She, I mean, she's been playing – international tennis as a champion, I don't know, for a while, but now it's senior, and she wins, and she's in great shape, and she's well-known all over the world. I mean, you just, I mean, people that you know. <laughs> so it used to be when she was married to Marshall, and she wrote to me about this. She said, uh, I remember those dinners at the Rothsteins. They were our friends at that time. Yeah. And she said she remembers me talking about 
various things. She was very nice what she wrote. Everything connects, ultimately. Yeah, right. You know, if you have enough relationships and you foster them as you do, they all, you've seeded the ground with relationships. They all sort of blossom at the same time. It's wonderful. Yeah. And what, so I said to her in the letter I wrote to her, I said, well, you know, Judy, I'd love to see you again. And I said, I said, lunch with John Gallagher. They're, They're very good friends. I said, because of the longer curriculum. And I said, um, you know, uh, I think that I think it would be great to see you again. Maybe we can arrange a meeting with John. And I wrote to John and I said, wouldn't it be wonderful uh, if uh, we could, that invitation to the Longo Cricket Club, if Judy could be there? And he wrote back, oh, wow, that's a terrific <laughs> idea. So I'm looking forward to, and he said, I'll pick you up. And when I left the car, when he dropped me off after that lunch at the St. Patolf, uh, club, he said, Larry, I like your socks. Do you like these, Joe? Oh, yeah, we do talk about your socks. Let me take a look there. Wow. Uh, those lowest purchase socks? Yes. Very nice. Well, you make a statement when you walk into a room and lift your pant leg up. Yeah, they probably say to themselves, <laughs> who's this? It begins with A. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> so, in any event, uh, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward That's to that great. because that'll be wonderful. That's now, great. as far as Marshall is concerned, he lives in Truro. He's never lost his entrepreneurship. There was a grocery store there. He turned it into an emporium that has all sorts of things, including books, the right sort of food and so forth. He doesn't show up a lot, but it was his idea. He got the right people to run it. He was living with a lady who died within the last three or four weeks. Now, Marshall is not the kind of guy that you call up and talk to and chat with, but I did write him a letter after that and told him, that I was sorry to hear that. And I think that he was quite affected by it, and he wrote back a letter that demonstrated how affected he was. But, you know, knowing Marshall, it's not going to stop him from going on. And um, uh, so there was a guy in high school that nobody ever heard of that became Hmm. very early on a very important person. One of the things I could say about Marshall is it's the kind of stuff he did. The In Cambridge, in Harvard Square, they had a, a booksmith. Kurt Vonnegut at that time was very popular. And Kurt Vonnegut never showed up for readings. So Marshall writes to him and he says, well, I know you don't show up very much, but what I'm hoping is that what, I've, what I can arrange is a, uh, a reading uh, outside the store, right down the street from Harvard Square. Um, and... Um, this would be a midnight reading, and, uh, you know, I think some people would show up. Well, the place was Bedlam. Kurt Vonnegut speaking at midnight in front of the booksmith. I mean, they were like, I don't know how many people. They were probably a couple of thousand, mm. and Kurt Vonnegut was absolutely stunned. So he did show up for that one. Oh, he showed up for that one. Yeah. yeah, but he wrote back that I'll come for that. He must have liked the way Marshall presented it. Smart. And um, so— um, there you go. Um, there he was. Now, as far as Marshall and I are concerned, I wanted him in my book. And he said, well, I, I know. I, I, he was like, uh, he, he was like. Humble? Well, no, no. It's not that humble. He just, he's, he, he's sort of shy. Okay. Doesn't like to put himself forward. And um, so, but then he said, well, okay. Um so he came, 
And um, he gave me a lot of the stuff that I've told today about the history, his history in that business. And then he got up after a half an hour and he said, well, this is enough. (laughs) (laughs) He walked out. So a little while later, I needed his picture for for the book. So I went looking for him and he wasn't there. I went into the back office and I'm walking out and there's Marshall walking toward me. It was, we were always very friendly. I mean, even down at Wellfleet in the Wellfleet Marketplace, I would ask for him, and a couple of times he was there, and he came out and we would chat and talk. I mean, you know. But he's not hail fellow well met where you'd call, hey, did you hear this joke? I mean, you don't do mm-hmm. that with him. Um, I don't even do that. I mean, I, I like to talk to people, but, you know, so. A man of letters, though. A man of letters. A so, man of books. Who? Him? Yeah. yeah. And you. Yeah, so that— so he's coming toward me, and I, I st- we stopped to chat with each other. I said, Marshall, I need your picture for the book. So I said, how about right now? And I picked up my phone, took a picture of him. It's in the book. I said, we'll see you later, Marshall. He walked on. Probably a smart move on your part to nail him, to get him to oh. stop still for a minute. And, and, it's, and it's a nice picture. Absolutely. He smiled, and um, so that— um, well, I think people will get a sense of who he is, and when they visit the Brookline Booksmith, for instance, they'll have a better sense of the history. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just— And, uh, and the legacy that he's created. Oh, yeah. He's never stopped. I think he still has an interest. And um, But look, he's 90 years old, so he's not going to be out there working every day. Doesn't stop many 90-year-olds that I know of. Hey, I'm looking is, at one right I, now. You know, I, I can't fathom. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. Well, I can't fathom. What it is that I have that gives me this ability to keep functioning at this age. I know what it is, Larry. You want to know the secret? Yes. The socks. <laughs> it's the socks. Well, it's, Lois, as difficult as she can be, I know you think she's she never has a bad day. She can have a bad day. But she's a great person. And look, when you say the socks, it stands for all she does for me. She When I said I was coming over here at 10 o'clock in the morning for this interview— knowing my habits of getting up late and staying up till 3 in the morning. So she said, what? She said, I'm not taking you over there again. And she kept saying that for two or three days. So last night she says, well, maybe I'll take you over there. I think (laughs) she's afraid I'll kill myself. Well, that also she likes coming here. She likes seeing uh, the boys. So that's (laughs) good. Larry, as always, a pleasure. The people you talk about are great to know in a new way when you talk about them. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.